This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Hi, this is Marina Sirdis, Diana Troy from Star Trek The Next Generation. You're listening to Trek FM. P.O. Greyheart. Welcome, listeners, to another cup of Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I am your host, Amy Nelson. Richard is away this week, but joined with me today is Justin Ozer. Justin, how are you doing today? Doing great. Great to be here. Listeners, of course, would know this if they're listening to it, but you're doing this through a different computer, so it's like a different perspective on things. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't quite relate to the topic, I don't think, but no. <laughs> but anyway, great great to be here with you. Yeah, I was thinking Control took over my computer and was, you know, trying to sabotage me at every turn. I can't believe it. Yeah, that does happen. Yeah, I guess nine years is too old for a computer these days. I just want them to last. Can't they just work forever? <laughs> they should. If a starship can last for 100 years, why can't a computer? I know, right? Well, listeners, um, let's get to some Babel Conference feedback that we have for Earl Grey 273. And that was our Lost Episodes Part 7. It was so much fun. So, Justin, why don't you start us off? Yeah, and before I start, that was the one with the crazy Q episode called IQ Test. So uh, Patrick Carlin says, I want to see this episode. So that's all in caps, a bunch of smiley faces. And he says, you know that the weird and crazy episodes of Trek are some of my favorites, so this sounds right up my alley. So yeah, if we could go back in time and make that for you, Patrick, we would, because I don't know, it probably would have been really weird, but I still kind of want to see what it would have been like. You know, there's something to be said about the weird and crazy episodes. You remember them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know if I've talked about this on Earl Grey, but I love Move Along Home and Threshold. And I know lots of people don't like it, but I think they're fun. Yeah. <laughs> so this would have been another one like that. All right. Well, we have Randy Congdon says, after I heard this, there are two things I'm glad about. One, that the episode was never produced. And two that if this episode had been released, it would not have been until season five. By then, the series was an established hit. If IQ Test had come out in season one, it might have turned off enough fans that the potential rating loss could have been devastating to TNG. Okay, that might be a bit drastic, but either way, I would have hated it. Well, Randy, thank you for your uh, spirited comment there. <laughs> spirited is one way to put it. Randy would have hated it. So, I mean, and that's fine. But I think that uh, there are some other things in season one that didn't kill it. So, you know, if it can, if TNG could survive the last outpost and Code of Honor and Angel One and all that stuff, it probably would have survived. But <laughs> yeah. Ouch, surviving those episodes. All right. <laughs> well, you know that I love season one, but there are some in season one where I'm like, I really wish that hadn't happened. So yeah, that's my opinion. <laughs> so uh, Brian Narowski says, I was thinking the Quantum Leap Q episode is very similar to the Things Past episode of DS9. This is where Odo brings Kira, Sisko, and Garrick to relive one of his previous memories. But with a little twist. I really like that episode and having Red Foreman in DS9 was great. Also, the Q episode where Q would duplicate the crew but change one thing about them seems a bit too complicated, but still, I would have liked to see how they worked that one out as an episode. This reminded me of Tapestry where Q essentially changes one thing in Picard's life. Of course, that is arguably one of the best episodes of TNG. Great podcast guys always love hearing these lost episodes, and these in particular had more behind-the-scenes information, which is very interesting. Yeah, so thank you, Brian. Appreciate the comments. 
I totally didn't think about the comparison to things past, but yeah, it is kind of like Quantum Leap where all of a sudden they're in these other bodies in Odo's past. So I could totally see that. Like the Red Foreman reference, Kurtwood Smith. I always forget he's in that episode of, of DS9. I think of him more from Anorax from Voyager or the Federation president from Star Trek VI, but it's cool he had a little role in DS9. So yeah, appreciate the comments and the comparisons. I love how our listeners think of things that we just didn't think of during the episode. Yep, it's always good. We've got the best listeners. Well, today, very excited. We have a special guest on with us and to come back, Joe Keegan, to talk to us about science. Joe, welcome back to Earl Grey. Thank you, Amy. It's so nice to be here. Thank you, Justin, also. Um, Yesterday, I spent the day at a music festival in Scotland. Um, So I mentioned to Justin earlier that a bit about Sunkist, which was a, a phrase he didn't understand. Um, For us, it's a brand of orange-flavored drink. So, yes, you know. indeed. Um, so, yeah, I'm trying to keep myself hydrated, and I'm looking forward to talking about science today. It's exciting. Excellent, yes, yeah. it is. Science yeah, is exciting. Yeah, we had a good response for our first, and we only got through three seasons, so we are going to pick it back up with season four and uh, Joe, why don't you talk to us about Devil's Due? I just wanted to say first, though, that it's unsurprising that it got good feedback because um, Star Trek fans are an intelligent bunch. We're savvy, smart, scientific folk. Um, but that that's just, that's just something. Uh, okay, Devil's Due. My idea for this was... Um, the idea of cybernetics and uh, augmentations that you could make to the body to kind of augment reality. Um, in the episode, um, Amy, did you read out the synopsis? Well, no, let me remind the listeners what that is, um, in case you forgot. That's where the USS Enterprise-D responds to a distress signal from a science station on Ventax 2 where the planet is in chaos over the return of a being who claims to be that culture's devil. And then hijinks ensue. So the character of Ardra, who portrays the, the devil um, for the, the Vintaxian people, um, she has contact lenses. I think it's contact lenses. Yeah. Um, and allows her to send signals and communicate with her ship so that she can... Um, make all the illusions and make her appear um, like all-powerful. So how does that relate to our current understanding of science? We've already got um, things like Google Glass, which um, you might have seen um, in recent years. Um, but I noticed that Google, Samsung and Sony have all pain- patented concepts for um, augmented reality contact lenses. So wearables that would allow you to kind of access the internet or overlay your vision with information about what was around you. So you imagine being a tourist in a foreign city and you would look around and it would identify the buildings for you, um, show you landmarks, interesting historical facts. Um, another side of it is prosthetic limbs being printed, like 3D printed prosthetic limbs. There was a video I saw earlier of um, a guy who had lost his forearm and they printed a prosthetic hand for him that allowed him to still hold his guitar plectrum and play the guitar, which was, was amazing. Um, I think as a musician as well, if I lost the ability to play the piano, it would be devastating. So um, I think we're still a few years away before um, if you lose your hand, they can give you a, like, a robotic hand that still allows you to play the piano, but again, we're, we're not that far away, I don't think. So here's a question, Joe. Yes. I mean, to what extent would, like, if, let's say all the technology was there to have whatever, like, cybernetic augmentation or that kind of thing, how far would you go? Ooh, good question. I, I, I think, I would like to think that I would go, like, all the way. Like if your internal organs start to break down or stop working as you get older, then I'm quite happy to have my liver, kidneys, spleen, stomach, heart, everything replaced. Because I quite 
enjoy living at the moment. Um, obviously, if you get to a point where your your brain um, stops functioning as it normally does, like with uh, dementia or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, then that may be a different story. Um, I don't think we'll ever be able to get to a place where, unless they cure these diseases, then I don't see a point where you can replace the human brain. Um, but yeah, I would go all the way. I would want to be one of those Futurama guys. It's like a kind of a head in a, a head in a bucket, <laughs> like five hundred years in the future. You you really would want that? Yeah, don't see why not. Well, I, I here's here's the thing. So, I mean, I think that there's a lot of great applications for those kinds of things to to relieve suffering and make sure that we live good lives, but. I actually have a fundamental problem with the idea of wanting to somehow live indefinitely. I think life can have it its greatest meaning when there's a limited amount of time to it. I mean, I don't think that, you know, we, there should be any undue or unnecessary suffering or anything like that. But like, what would it actually mean to live 200, 300, 500, 1,000, 10,000 years? Like, what does that like even mean? Or, or what do you do with all of that time? So... I tend to think about about those things, but you know what we can do to relieve suffering while we're alive. I think is good, but the extension of life through those things is maybe another question. Mm, that's true. Um, yeah, what a psychological effect does that have on a a human mind? Yeah, and what if only some people can have that kind of thing and others can't? And you know, your friends who can't afford to do it or wouldn't want to do it or just dying off and you know what i mean like it might be mm -hmm. kind of sad <laughs> i don't know just projecting yeah, forward no that's the thing um would you do it if your loved ones and your family and friends chose not to i don't know if i would want to live in a world where i didn't have my family but if you lived longer you could always make new family i guess so <laughs> what do you think amy <laughs> Well, I would definitely, the first thing, get my eyes done for sure. Like I want those either Geordie eyes or you know, cybernetics because I'm just, ugh, my eyes are the worst. So I think I would go along those lines. I don't know about internal organs or anything like that, but, you know, small organs I would consider. So I, I would definitely take advantage of it if I could, you know. Like definitely the pancreas would be a good one um, if they could make an artificial pancreas for people that are diabetic. Because obviously diabetes is a huge problem across the world. Um, yeah, what would you not get done? Well, I mean, there becomes a question like at, at what point is it less you and more something else, right? I mean, although the things cycle through your body to a certain extent so that all of the cells in your body get replaced within, I don't know what it is, five seven years or years, seven, five yeah. or seven years, right? So in what sense are you still you? It's because you think of yourself as still you, you know, like, I, I don't know, it gets into like this philosophical area, but, but yeah, I, I don't know, like at what point it would be a big enough change that you wouldn't necessarily feel like yourself anymore. I mean, it makes me think of, of discovery and Hugh Culber, like, is he really a different person, right? Even with the same memories and how would that feel? You know, I don't know. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. Not about what, but how much, like what percentage? Yeah. Because I think it would be one thing if it's like, Oh, you know, let me replace my eyes or, Oh, there's a little pancreas here. But what if it was like the entire lower half of your body or something like that, or the entire upper half of your body? Like, I don't know. Like at what point does it become, so that you're not sure if it's still you. <laughs> I don't know. I think for the most part, maybe if your brain was still intact, then that is like the sum total of what makes you, your perception of yourself, you, if you know what I'm trying to say. Um, however, a lot of what makes us individuals is our ability to sense our environment. So you, they would have to get, like, your, if it was the lower half of your body not having the sensation sensation of touch could be quite a, have a quite a big impact on your life experience um don't know if i'd want to get anything like replaced 
like your hands would I get my hands replaced because my hands are quite important as a pianist um yeah, but I mean that, that, that now we're getting into places where things like that have happened. I mean, people you know lose limbs and they're replaced with prosthetic limbs, and you know yes. they're able to, you know, live out their their lives in that way. Maybe it's a different experience. I certainly can't speak from that experience, but yeah. there is already some of that that happens, right? No, that's true. I am, but I think that's kind of a, a medical intervention to give them back some um, functionality that they'd previously lost. But would I choose to have my perfectly functional hands severed to be replaced with something that was better, essentially? Mm. Like, would I, like, I could have robotic fingers that could move five times as fast so I could play way more complicated things on the piano. Um, Is it worth it? I don't know. Ah, yeah. And then going from a choice to replace instead of like a medical intervention. Interesting. Yes. I feel like we could talk about this topic for a long time. Yeah. (laughs) We have a few other things. (laughs) We do indeed. Well, let's get to Galaxy Child, another season four episode. And LaForge finds out that a scientist is hardly what he imagined her to be. Interesting. Hmm. Uh, Meanwhile, they must work together to save the child of a space-born alien the Enterprise has accidentally killed. So this is the one with the the child space that sucks onto the Enterprise, and then they take it to uh, something mineral-rich portion of Yeah, have like an asteroid belt or something. Yeah. 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 All right, Joe, why are we talking about this one? So I think I can adopt this episode, Space Life Part 2, because I know in the previous episode we'd spoken about a lot of different instances of where we've got life that's evolved in space, like the Gormangander or the Mycelial Network and Discovery, etc. So um, a couple of things occurred to me. The, the creature, which is never given a name, kind of reminded me of microscopic life that has flagella or like tails or appendages that allow it to kind of move around. So there's that aspect of it. Since our last episode, there have been no updates on our kind of search for life out in space, um, whether it evolved on a planet or it evolved out in space. So we've got no no other data points. Our only kind of life data that we have is the life that evolved on Earth. The other thing that I... Occurred to me to talk about was the idea, not necessarily scientific, but the idea of consent. And it's um, Jordy's kind of relationship with Dr. Leah Brahms and how it's kind of creepy, even though it's like a, it's a holodeck character, so that would normally be fine, but it's a holodeck um, representation of a real life individual, which is which is odd. So there's two aspects of this which um, I thought would be interesting to talk about. Yeah, you mentioned the, those like flagella-like things. It's almost like this organism it looks like it can almost like swim in space. Does that even like make sense as a concept? <laughs> no, I suppose that if you're swimming, you have to have some medium through which to swim. Like if I swim, I would use my hands to kind of drag water from in front of me to behind me and that would cause me to move forward microscopic life the obvious example is sperm and um, they have flagella that allows them to swim um through the liquid and um, that they, they exist in um so yeah unless they were had some other kind of method of locomotion then just flapping their tails back and forward wouldn't necessarily make them move forward. What do you think of the space life in this episode, Amy? Yeah, that's interesting because you're saying like to swim through a medium and if there's nothing, then yeah, you could move, but you wouldn't, there wouldn't be a reaction to it, right? You'd just be flapping about. Well, and yeah. probably if you tried to move, it wouldn't move you forward. It might like move you to the side or something because I don't know. I don't know how I would think about it, but it's not going to get you where you need to be in a vacuum, right? No, you'd just be spinning um, around. You just yeah, you'd be flapping around. Um you could I suppose you've seen a lot of sci fi um movies where I'm thinking of the Martian 
where they're trying to rescue him at the end and he uses, he cuts a, a hole in his spacesuit glove and he uses the escaping gas as a, a propellant to you know, um, move him closer to being rescued. Um, I suppose if you had something like a an object and you threw it away from you, then you're going to move in the opposite direction. Newton's third law. For every action, there's an equal and, op- an equal and opposite reaction. But as far as we saw, there were there was nothing being expelled in terms of a propellant in order to move our little space creatures in this episode. Unless there's some kind of invisible thing coming out the back of... Some kind of radiation, <laughs> okay. yeah. Oh. But if there was, they might have mentioned it. Right. <laughs> Possibly. Hmm. So all these things flying around in space, and specifically this one, it doesn't really add up that they move their tails and, and go and swim yeah. through space. Okay. It good, yeah. Not it's been not any, debunked. Not any kind of explanation that might make some sense. I mean, I think it. I don't know if we'll talk about this at some point, Joe. But it turns out there is actually like energy in the vacuum. But I don't know if a macroscopic creature could make use of that. But true, anyway. yeah. When we say the vacuum of space, it's not perfect vacuum. Um, like there's the solar wind, um, which is full of radiation particles. Um, so it's close to vacuum. It's much closer to vacuum than it is living in an atmosphere. Um, But I don't think anywhere in space is a perfect vacuum. That's true. There are particles. I was actually thinking of like the the quantum energy of the vacuum, but that's a totally Mm. different thing. (laughs) I think it might be. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) What What about the idea of consent? Is that science enough to talk about you know it's just when i see jordy you know do the holodeck of leah brahms and and yeah that whole idea of consent i was like oh when was uh hollow pursuit it was before that yeah exactly and so i know <laughs> i'm like jordy Bad you're jordy, the one yeah. who told and you know was there when barkley recreated people that he knew you know, that he knows. And it's like, no, you don't do that. That sort of crosses a boundary. And then yet he goes and recreates. I mean, granted, he didn't know her, but it is a live person. I mean, the the other thing is, though, he calls up something from the computer. He's like, hey, can you? Well, I think that was in the episode before this, but like, can Baby you drop. have some kind of interactive program? And it's like, oh, sure, I can do that. So there's no like safeguard to prevent them from doing that. And there's at least some information about what Leah Brahms looks like and all of that to be able yeah, to well, do it. I don't know. He asked to, you know, well, upload her personal files. What? That's yeah, true. Yeah, where's the safeguards of that? <laughs> yeah. Well, let's move on to in theory. And this is where we have Data trying to understand humanity. He's going to start a program, a dating program, so that he can date Jenna DeSora and try and get this romantic relationship with her. In the meantime, a nebula the Enterprise is passing through is causing strange things to happen on the ship. So why are we talking about this one, Joe? That has to be dark matter, doesn't it? Her understanding of the the material and energy that makes up the universe. So currently, 85% of the universe made up of stuff that we can currently detect and that we don't know what it is. It's a huge chunk. 5% of the universe is like stuff like you and I, planets, stars, normal matter, made up of um, protons and neutrons and electrons, um, which is really, really kind of mind-blowingly awesome that most everything that we know about is only a tiny fraction of the universe. And once we do find out about it, how is that going to change science, our understanding of the way the universe works? Um, what new technologies will be spawned from our understanding of what dark matter and dark energy is? It is really something. Yeah, there's there's two parts to it. I mean, I think they they do mention dark matter in the episode, don't they? Yeah, so I guess back, back that far, they knew that there was some component that was causing, you know, the 
the gravitational pull you see of galaxies not to make sense unless there was something you can't observe. But there's this even bigger thing called dark energy that they found afterwards that's pushing the universe out to accelerate faster and faster, which is like crazy. I don't think they could have even imagined back then because I think dark matter was the thing like, what is all this stuff? But there's like all this other stuff that's like the energy of space that's pushing things out as well, which is kind of crazy, right? Both of those concepts. It's, it's very odd and it's strange in that we don't know what it is. We don't want, don't know what it could be. Um, literally, it's, it could be anything, but we don't have the technology currently to detect it. We just know the effect that it has on things that we can see. Okay, so question... From the uh, ignorant one over here. Hello. So dark matter, is that just, like you said, 85%? It's not that much. The 85% is the dark matter and the dark energy. The dark matter is maybe, what, 20% or something? 27%, my figures, in dark energy is... Oh, no, it should be 95. So dark energy is 68% of the universe. Dark matter is 27%. And that makes 95%. So that means the rest of the universe, um, which is the 5%, is normal matter and energy. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, and that's based on the stuff that we can see, like the galaxies and stars and interstellar dust and all of that. That only adds up to 5%. So there's other things from different observations for how the universe is expanding and for the gravitational pull that's going on within galaxies and clusters of galaxies and things that you can't account for. Like it's some other thing. We don't know what it is. Yeah, and that's the state of play at the moment. We just, we know there has to be something there. We just don't know what it is. There was a really interesting simulation uh, recently where, you know, the the normal images that you see of galaxies where you get like uh, the galactic core, which is kind of more bulbous. It's a bit like a a sombrero, I suppose. Um, And the edges of the galaxy are thinner and you get the spiral arms. They then took those images, which are the 5% that we've been talking about. They overlaid the dark matter and the dark energy, which would be there. And galaxies then don't look like spiral disks. They look more spherical, like ball-shaped, which is like, whoa, okay. So there's most of what, most of the dark energy and dark matter then would be outside the, the space that, and normal matter and energy would exist in, in a galaxy. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. There's so much to Yeah, I don't understand so anything about it. It's like, it's crazy. It, yeah, it really is. So there's, they're still trying to find out like, what is that? And like, you know, we don't see that we know of dark matter in our own solar system. It's just like on these bigger scales that you can see there's this stuff that's, that's out there. But I think for the dark energy, that's something they think is in, might be in like all of space everywhere. <laughs> which is yeah just apparently it's everything but we can't detect it sorry amy i don't know if you had another part of the question but but it's it's a yeah I, I mean definitely listeners i mean take a look more into some of this stuff because some of the concepts are kind of mind-blowing and it's also amazing how much we don't know there is so much we don't know and can't explain still yeah it's like we've barely scratched the surface in terms of science absolutely we think we know quite a lot and we've done quite a lot with what we know. but So are there other colors of matter? Because I was just uh, re-watching Star Trek 09 and they talk about the red matter. Red matter is not a real thing. Okay, all right. <laughs> just to be clear. Um, just dark matter. Yeah, well, I mean, there's kind of, yeah, like Joe said, the regular matter that we talk about, which has protons, electrons, neutrons, interacts certain ways and gives off light and all that stuff so you can observe it and... But uh, and then there's this dark matter that must be out there. I who knows? Maybe the universe is twenty seven percent red matter, right? But but like that that's totally a concept that they made up for that movie. I think it's um, it's one of those naming conventions that um, scientists sometimes have. If you don't know what it is, just label it with something. Like with when Wilhelm Röntgen discovered X rays, he called them X because he didn't know what they were. And the name stuck. Um, we now know what they are, but it doesn't have a more interesting name. It's just X. Yeah, it would have been interesting if in 2009 they just called it dark matter and it was just 
like black or something. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, no, they just made that up as this super powerful stuff that can just create black holes. All right. Well, let's move on to season five, where we have Silicon Avatar. And this is where the Enterprise gives chase to the crystalline entity after it destroys a Federation colony. A xenologist who has motivation all her own with respect to the crystalline entity is assigned to the Enterprise to assist in the investigations. All right, Joe, I'm assuming we're talking about the crystalline entity. Yes, it's that idea of, I've called this one Space Life Part 3. Because um, obviously Star Trek, so life in space comes up all the time. Um, there was a story from a few years ago where a NASA astrobiologist called Felisa Wolf-Simon discovered a, a bacterium called GFAJ1 in Mono Lake in California. And deep in Mono Lake, there um, it's very alkaline um, and it's very hypersalinated, so it's very, very salty. Um, and the discovery was that it metabolized arsenic which is kind of unique um, in terms of the way life on Earth works. However, I was brushing up on the research for this episode. It turns out they've not been able to replicate the findings of that research. Um, the hype at the time was that in the scientific community got very excited thinking that they'd maybe discovered alien life on Earth, life that didn't necessarily belong because it didn't operate in the way that normal earth life operates is, is that because for all other life that they knew of arsenic would just be poisonous yeah it's kind of toxic yeah they thought that the this bacteria had evolved to replace the phosphorus in its dna with arsenic because chemically phosphoric and arsenic are similar um but it turns out not to be the case it's just earth life and it's just a bit unique I'm That's a shame, Joe. I expected you I to announce on this podcast that you'd found we discovered alien life. Ah, <laughs> uh, welcome. Then I bring on, I bring on a little creature. It's like, hey, <laughs> uh, no, sorry, no, no exclusive announcements today. I'm afraid that'd be a shame because it would be cool if you know you were doing some scientific research like where you live and you just found something right there in Scotland. That would be cool. I think there's quite a lot of alien life in Scotland. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Uh, no, we're all we're a friendly bunch in Scotland. We're all we're all quite normal. Um, so yeah, life again. No additional data points on um, the life in the universe. Just the one that we have on Earth. But the crystalline entity is kind of interesting. Like, would it be possible for there to be a life form that's really crystalline like that? I mean, of course, I, we don't know. I but. honestly don't know. I don't see given the. The weirdness that we see in the universe, um, I don't see why not. Given conditions, could something have evolved um, to be a crystalline structure but be intelligent also? I honestly don't know. I mean, maybe 27% of the universe, the dark matter, is actually a bunch of like crystalline entities. <laughs> they, and they've just not found us yet. <laughs> Who knows? But that yeah. that's another good question. If... 5% of the universe is just normal, normal stuff. Um, and 95% is the dark stuff. Could we have a whole um, other huge number of species that are dark matter, dark energy? Does it work that way? So one thing I noticed about the crystalline entity and after talking about uh, Galaxy's Child, like, the crystalline entity seems to have its own propulsion system because when it yeah. stops, it stops. And it when goes it to goes, warp too. I know. Like, so I'm whoa. like, huh, I wonder that's different than what we saw in Galaxy's Child. So it must have its own way to move. It must, but you don't see it. It just kind of zooms no. off, right? Yeah. But I think that's also a fascinating concept, a natural organism that can go to warp. Like that just seems crazy. Or but... Or was it warp? Or was it just faster than light propulsion? Because our ideas behind warp drive are kind of specific. And that you... I, well, yeah, that's true. I mean, warp, I think, is the only theoretical way that we know of that faster than light travel of something physical is possible. But 
I don't know. So it's interesting to think that this entity can move itself, but still not have the comprehension. Like it's just feeding, like, you know, this, so it doesn't have reason, but yet it was able to develop its own way to move through space, which I mean, we as humans, well, and in Star Trek, you know, we have to have an engine to move us through space and look at all the reason that we have. Yeah, that's, I mean, it, it is, it is interesting that it has those capabilities. I mean, I, I don't know. The, the only way I could think about it is if there was be some survival reason for it to move that quickly, but how would that even like arrive like via evolution? I mean, it, it makes me think that it's maybe not just that it came about that naturally, that it was actually engineered in some way. Mm, that's an interesting yeah. idea. Because it doesn't I mean, look necessarily that natural, does it? It looks kind of like it's been grown in a lab, mm-hmm. possibly. It kind of does, yeah. And actually, oh, I was trying to think about this because the the I think the crystalline entity, it makes an appearance in one of the Titans, Titan novels, Orion's Hounds, which is actually a really great novel because there's tons of different spacefaring organisms in the novel. And I'm trying to remember if they got it, whether it was natural or it was engineered. I'm not remembering at the moment, but but yeah, it's um, it's cool to just think of the idea of these space-born organisms and whether it's possible. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move to disaster. We have a quantum filament disables the Enterprise, leaving Counselor Troy in command on the bridge and various groups on different parts of the ship facing perils alone. This is such a fun episode. So let's talk about all the science in this. That's what I'd call this. All the science. science. (laughs) It's it's just got so much in it. However, I did want to mention the, the main kind of protagonist in this or antagonist is the quantum filament. Um, I'm going to read this out because I have no clue what it means. Quantum filaments are things found in dipolar Bose-Einstein condensates. And that means that they're completely different to what we see in the episode. I've no idea what a a dipolar Bose-Einstein condensate is, apart from the fact that it's a very um, kind of exotic state of matter. I think that we're dealing with... Um, materials that have been cooled down to near absolute zero. That's about all I know about that. that too. <laughs> that's that, me too. Yeah, it's some totally special thing. Otherwise. But but the yes. actual term quantum filament and they make that up. I didn't think. That yeah, was I a think they would have. Term. There's a line where Diana says to O'Brien, I think it is. Um, or is that the same as a, a super string? He's like, oh, no, no, no. He's like, no, 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 they're completely different. (laughs) It's totally different. Uh Yeah. Obviously. But that that is one of the interesting things in in Star Trek. There are some things they take from real science, and then there are other things that they just kind of extrapolate a little bit or make up a name and call it something. Yeah. Or in this case, use something as a thing and completely change it to fit the the narrative needs of the episode. Like a time crystal. (laughs) Yes. So a question that I have always wanted to ask and now I can. This is the episode the one where Beverly and Jordy are trapped in the uh yes in the cargo the bay. Shuttle bay. Shuttle bay. Yeah. yeah. Cargo bay and there's this fire that's mm-hmm. not it's a plasma fire. Yes. And they have to open up the doors to suck out all the oxygen so that the fire dies. Yes. Right? Okay. So I still don't understand how they survive because if they open the doors, isn't it going to suck out all the oxygen inside their body? Even if you're holding your breath, like isn't the power of that going to remove all the oxygen from your body as well? Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Joe. No, I was going to say, I think the, I think what you're supposed to do if you ever find yourself having kind of been blown out an airlock is you're supposed to exhale can completely um, get rid of any air that's in your lungs so that you don't experience that huge force of the vacuum trying to pull the, mm-hmm. yeah. the air out your your lungs. Yeah. You, you, you can actually survive in a vacuum if you, if you do that where you expel all of the air first for, I think you'd hit unconsciousness 
15 seconds maybe. So what what shows in the episode I think is actually possible because it's gradually happening. It's not like they're in a vacuum right away. It's it's just kind of going out little by little. So I think even the time period that they're showing that that is actually um possible. And and I think I was remembering there was um there was some testing that they were doing with astronauts in the in the 60s to be in like a vacuum environment in a spacesuit and an astronaut was in there and something happened so that the astronaut was actually exposed to vacuum for like 10 or 15 seconds and he survived and after a little while it was fine so it, it is actually possible hmm. okay the other thing is that you would be exposed to really really cold temperatures um and with the so be really cold so you would quickly start to freeze from the outside in but also the massive negative pressure would um, cause like the the blood vessels on the surface of your skin to kind of burst but it does take a little bit of time so like for, would, a yeah, yeah. Sh- for a short time like the short time that it happens in the episode i don't know i think, I th- I think totally it would be fine yeah i think they would be okay actually even though it seems weird that they should be, I think, because I think Jordy does like, you know, like breathe in a little bit and then exhale before he hits the button. So he's doing the right thing. <laughs> I think um, Beverly tell like briefs them on how to survive just before they do it. So they're ready. Yeah, for maximum she does. survivability. Right. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I think that is one of the things that's actually totally realistic, which is cool. Yeah. I also like the, the Riker data. That Riker's was, data's um, head. Yes. Or just the, the high voltage arc that data stops with his his body. I think that's kind of cool. And kind of reasonably scientifically accurate. Yeah, data's just can withstand that much charge. Sure. <laughs> well, let's talk about the Masterpiece Society. And the Enterprise tries to save a quote-unquote perfect colony from destruction, but the assistance causes damage of its own. All right. What are we going to talk about with Masterpiece Society? Gene editing. And the only note I gave myself was Neanderthal man. So this is kind of hold on to your seats territory. This is absolutely mind-blowing. There is a, a radio panel show in the UK on BBC Radio 4 called The Infinite Monkey Cage. And they had their 100th episode recently. And they had a biologist on talking about what their what she, the work that she was involved in. And I still don't quite believe it because it's, it's high-level crazy. So, in the Himalayas, they found a perfectly preserved specimen of Homo neanderthalensis, which is Neanderthal man. The, it was so well preserved that the the DNA strands in a lot of his body were well preserved and could be extracted and then they could sequence the, the DNA or the genome of uh, Neanderthals. What they did was they used very cool molecular scissors, so tiny little kind of um, scissors that could be used to snip out sections of DNA, like individual genes. And then they took some human DNA and they used their molecular scissors to transplant some of their Neanderthal DNA into human DNA. Well, which is cool. Okay, so they did that. Yep. Uh-huh. Then they took some human stem cells and implanted this edited gene into the human stem cells. And they allowed the cells to grow into little things called organoids, which are like little tiny miniature brains about the size of a pea, I believe. And they formed neurons, which are little nerve cells, little brain cells, uh, like thousands of little cells. And they got to the point where the cells would start to fire little electrical impulses and kind of not communicate, but when you've got nerve cells, they will kind of fire across the synaptic gap. Um, And then the idea now is to take these little organoid brains and implant them in robots. 
so that they could use. Joe, you're sure this isn't a movie that you saw? No, seriously, I was like, <laughs> I'm still mind blown. Take the little organoid brains, implant them in robots, and they use the electrical impulses from the organoids to um, cause motion within the robot and make the robot move around. What? Yes, that's insane. I'm still stu- totally stunned. Totally stunned. Yes. So let's go back a little bit. Uh-huh. There's, so, there, there's so much in it, yeah, from Neanderthal man DNA implanting that DNA. Because I, I hadn't seen that story, and I was looking up something about it. Um, and and yeah, so, I mean, we think of Neanderthals as being in Europe primarily, right? Um, but I think this was like a some kind of subspecies Denisovan, which is similar to Neanderthal. But anyway, because someone might bring that up um so what they they took something out of that like ancient dna and combined it with something with current human dna and then grew something and implanted it in a robot to use impulses yeah i'm not sure that they've actually done the robot implantation yet i think that was the next stage in the research um but if they if they do do that then it's it's totally crazy like, yeah, where's our ancient human theme park like a Jurassic Park for like ancient humans oh yeah no, the, be weird. the Neanderthal Zoo yeah so when they do this I mean I just the ethics of it yes. all just comes to question like why are you doing this and what's gonna happen like well, I think that's maybe the point about most of science is Let's see what happens when we do this. Um, yeah, that's the thing. I think for science, it's oftentimes like, let's do this and see where it goes. But, you know, there may be ethical considerations which are separate from the application of some kind of science to it, right? That society or people working on it would have to make some determination whether it's ethical to do that, what it'll mean. So I think that's a like a tough question where the the line is because oftentimes if there aren't guidelines it's just like just do whatever you can right and see what happens. I think that's the thing about um, biology and genetic research is the huge ethical implications and ethical questions to be asked. You might have heard the story about the the Chinese genetic researcher who claimed to have genetically edited uh, a human embryo to make it resistant to the HIV virus and then to have implanted those embryos and to um, kind of grown them until babies were born. Um, yeah, I'm like, that's probably a good thing if we can genetically engineer resistance to viruses and diseases. But were the ethical questions kind of asked and answered during that research? Well, I think there's like what we can do now to actually like edit genes and do genetic engineering is probably a more direct way, but humans have been doing some form of kind of genetic engineering for a long time in, you know, doing selective breeding for, you know, crops and dogs and cats and all kinds of stuff to make, things that weren't there in nature before i think what we're doing now is more direct and i don't know i mean it could potentially have more issues because there's more that you can like mess around with (laughs) than you can with selective breeding but we've been doing like genetic engineering and manipulation actually for thousands of years without like directly editing them right Mm -hmm. the thing is about um, dna because it's so complicated we still really don't understand the language and how to speak the language. Um, so you could go in and edit a gene that you understand to have a specific purpose, but what are the other impacts of editing that gene? What's going to happen like generations down the line with that gene, edited gene? Have you changed it so maybe makes something else not work? Right. I mean, it, it kind of makes me think of like, you know, if you write, computer code and something you do something that breaks something else or something goes wrong well a process goes wrong or somebody's inconvenience but if you do something wrong in the genetic process like that has some like yeah real world implications potentially so and computer code is infinitely simpler than um, yes. dna um so yeah. 
nowhere near close to understanding all the, the implications that may have. But, I mean, it's a great question, Amy, like these ethical questions that I think are being asked, but I think at the same time, a lot of times things are just going forward and we don't necessarily know where they'll lead. So one thing about this episode that, you know, it has the word society in the title. And when, you know, we watch the episode, it's this small little, I mean, it's like a family, you know, it's not even large. I mean, could gene editing really work in a large population? Like, cause you know, in the episode they talk about, well, I'm the diplomat. And if I leave, then my genes are no longer and the society is going to fall apart. And if this artist leaves, then our society is going to fall apart. Like, does that have any real world sense? Does that make sense? I think that would make the, the society really fragile if the right. survivability of the society was based on one individual. Obviously, I don't know how many people lived in the Masterpiece Society, but I think there's is there not a lower limit on kind of your population for it to be viable and to last a long time. Like we're fine as humans, there's approaching 8 billion of us. So as long as we don't mess up the, the planet, then we're going to survive for a very long time. But if there's maybe a population of 100 people in this masterpiece society, then they're, they're going to have to inbreed at some point and they'll lose that genetic diversity. Infinite diversity and infinite combination. Well, let's move on to ethics. And we have, after Worf is paralyzed by a freak accident with those empty barrels, um, his only hope may be of visiting a doctor with questionable medical ethics. So I suppose this continues on for our discussion of ethics, not what I wanted to speak about for this episode. Um, my thoughts on this were about 3D printing, primarily, and stem cells. So we've all seen 3D printers where you extrude some kind of plastic and melt it in little droplets and you build something up like a, a tiny jigsaw. Um, however, there are newer processes where they use light to cure a resin in whatever shape that you want it to be. However, I read a story recently um, and it was on the subject of 3D printing and it was about food. Um, if you give your 3D printer um, all the raw materials and it's got a sufficiently small resolution, can you then have it print food? Kind of a, a simpler version of the replicator. So if you gave it all the atoms that would make up a steak, could you atom by atom build up that steak? Yes, we don't have the technology to do it just now. But the idea behind this um, was that within the next 50 years, this scientist wanted every household in the world to have their own 3D printer that could print all their food. So we wouldn't have farms um, because we would just be able to print all our food. Um, you, Sorry, you'd be able to print like it would change the fabric of society you would be able to print literally anything that you wanted you wouldn't have to go out to the shops there wouldn't be any shops anymore we wouldn't have a capitalist society that would collapse and you'd literally print what you needed to survive well i'll, I'll disagree <clears throat> with the the last part because i think that uh yeah the 3d printer does seem to be like an ancestor of a replicator like you see in in the next generation. But, you know, let's say you could print the food that you needed. Well, it's made out of some kind of material. Who do you buy that material from? What's it made from? What industries and things grow up around it? I, I don't think that would be like the end of, of people, you know, making money off of resources. I think really the end of that would be if there is a limitless source of energy that is just so freely available that it does that there's no need to actually like pay for it right and i think that's what happens in in the 
the universe of, of Star Trek that they've tapped such incredible amounts of, of energy that you can really kind of make whatever you want with the energy that's that's available to turn into into some kind of matter. So I don't know. That, that's how I think about it. But I think that 3D printing is moving that way toward where you could print out what you need and you don't necessarily need to have things manufactured or have things grown anymore at some point. But, but someone's selling you the printer and the resources for it, right? That's true. Um, yeah, like how I, would you get the atoms or supplies that a stake is? You I mean, know? you'd have to buy it. Just like for a 3D printer now, you buy the you? plastic or whatever from someone. Would you or would you just <laughs> shovel stuff in? Dark. At some and do point, the reverse process, you, like on 3D print the dirt to, or whatever, to throw a brick in, throw an old <laughs> shoe in, and it just, just keep, separates okay. it to, yeah, just it's like recycling. It. It's like the Back to the Future 2, where he's got his fuse. <laughs> yeah, he throws all his garbage and it oh, kind of yeah. does fusion okay, to it. Okay. So. Yeah. I mean, All maybe, right. although I, I've got to think that the future would be unlocking something in like a sustainable fusion or like a matter-antimatter reaction so you could get, liberate a huge amount of, of energy in some way. I don't know. But then you question. get people like me that like to tinker with technology and like how dangerous does it get where you've got, oh, your matter-antimatter reactor that's in your toaster. <laughs> um, I mean, then you do mm. something wrong and you blow up your street, kill right. everybody. That's possible. Yeah. You'd have to um, have some serious containment. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think that in terms of energy, sunlight is all the energy that we need. I think if you covered some, I'm going to get a statistic wrong. If you covered half of the Sahara Desert with solar panels, you're able to provide enough electrical energy for the entire population of the world. Well, guys, um, let's hold off here and let me get your final thoughts about what we've been talking about so far. Uh, Justin, let's start with you. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've loved these discussions because, Joe, you're you know thinking about these different episodes in, in the seasons and thinking about what science it, it brings up. And, you know, I'm always learning so much and there's things that tie into things that I've, you know, heard of or read about. Again, I'm not a scientist myself, but I'm very interested in some of these things. So I think it leads to a great discussion. I mean, we're talking about whether or not you'd want to add cybernetics to your body or replace parts. How far would you want to go? What are the ethical implications of gene editing? And, you know, what would it mean if everybody could print their food? So I love that we're, we're not just talking about the science, which is great, but we're talking about, you know, the implications on on our society and what we might do for ourselves. So yeah, I think it was another great discussion. Joe. I, th I think for the longest time I've been a scientist at heart from when I was very young um, and Star Trek came into my life. And I think Star Trek's very good at that. It's, it's good at dealing with kind of current scientific issues um, and also the ethics of those scientific issues. Um, I think ethics and science go hand in hand. If you don't do the ethics well, then your science isn't going to be very robust. Um, I think ethics has been a bit of a theme of this uh, podcast today, um, which is, very, well, it's not really a discussion on the science. It's just as important, I think. Um, I, I really enjoy the stuff on cybernetics and um, replacing yourself. Uh, parts of yourself and also um, gene editing. I'm not a biologist by any means, but um, I think gene editing and um, 3D printing are new technologies that are going to see massive advancements in the next few years. Yeah, uh, this definitely has been good. I've been able to ask some of the questions I've been thinking about, these science questions for the episodes. And just really, I mean, there's so much. I love our space life part two, part three, yeah. <laughs> you know, so because there's so much out there, you know. And then your amazing revelation to me that 
you know, we know 5%, that's our, what we know. And then the rest is just out there and we're, we've got a lot to figure out. And so it's just, these, uh, episodes are so fun. I learned so much and seriously, so much science is, is out there. So thank you, Joe, for coming on and coming back to Earl Grey. And we'll just have to have you back for some more science with Joe. Sure. Yeah. That'll be fun. Well, Joe, where can people find you online to discuss science and TNG with you more? Uh, I'll generally be found on Facebook, so you can get me on the Babel Conference. Um, if you want to email me, you can get me at joepodcasts at gmail.com or on Twitter, if you use my Twitter handle at joeyjoe77uk. I'd be happy to discuss science with you. So, Justin, I'm so excited for next week's episode. Richard has been working very hard, and we are going to have another role-playing game episode for you listeners. Part two. Part two. I mean, this is going to be a big one. Richard's been preparing for this one, I think, pretty much since we did the last one about six months ago. It's going to be big. So yes. you gotta, guys have, have to listen to that. Hopefully you enjoyed the first part. But uh, yeah, it's going to be epic, <laughs> I guess I could say. I think yes. Richard has quite a bit planned for it. So yeah. Yeah. And some announcements coming up and just a great game. Looking forward to it. Well, it's been so much fun talking about the science in TNG with Joe Keegan. But that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here's what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Literary Treks. The, it, it always frustrated me because on, on screen, we saw in depth the Klingon government, the Bajoran government, the Cardassian government, to a lesser extent the Romulan government. We almost never saw the Federation government. You know, we, we, three, three times we saw a president. Once we saw the council, the council was mentioned any number of times, but we never really saw it. Warp 5. When I go to throw a switch for the first time, you know, 4,000 amp switch, I got to wear this heavy, thick, padded uniform to make sure that if something went wrong, I don't die. But if I can get some Tholian silk. Yeah, you could look good be like a, doing it at the same time. Right. T-shirt right? and, and jeans and we're good. Maybe some I, I'm just thinking for when I go to Mexico, <laughs> I can have a stylish Tholian silk Mexican Hawaiian or a Hawaiian shirt. I love yeah, because you got to know that that stuff would that, that stuff would be light on you. It would look good. It would breathe well. Earl Grey. Yeah, and the odd thing was I really didn't know. And I remember my dad came to me. I was like nine years old. And I'm watching TV downstairs in New Jersey, and I'm watching some old James Cagney movie. And James Cagney was, you know in a scene where he was, you know, beating up a bunch of people, like in a barroom brawl. Or, and my dad came downstairs, it was like 10 o'clock at night, and he saw me really watching James Cagney beat up all these guys. And my dad said to me, you really like James Cagney? And I said, yeah, I do. And he goes, do you want to be like James Cagney? And I thought about it, and I said, no, but I want to be those guys he's beating up. <laughs> Melodic tricks. And in this music, you have these soaring horns that introduce the melody and they carry it through. And the sound, because the register is very high, the sound, and because of the nature of the French horn, the sound is very hollow. It's somewhat ghostly and haunting. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. That helps others to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, YouTube, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. 
Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to us, and we might read your email on the show. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. So, Justin, where can people contact you when you're not swimming in space? Oh, my God. I can only swim in space for a short time until, you know, I get knocked unconscious and you know, right. freeze Ten seconds. to death. <laughs> but when I'm not doing that, uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. And you can also find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. So, Amy, where can people find you when you're not walking down the streets of Las Vegas and trying to avoid hitting a quantum filament? <laughs> well, when I'm not doing that... Uh, You can find me here on the network where I am hosting The Edge, which is about Star Trek Discovery, and I do that with Patrick. I, oh, Postcards is done. So, gosh, what else am I doing? (laughs) You can find me over on the Fandom Podcast Network where I host Discoville with Haley, Kyle, and Kevin. You can find me on Twitter at Miss Amy Nelson, but really my favorite place right there in the Babel Conference. So, Amy... A little bonus question for you. Okay. Yeah. So since we're talking about science in the next generation, I know you teach math, but tell us about something related to science that you throw into things that you teach. (laughs) Is there like a story about a scientist who also did math or something like that? Well, yes, there's always mathematicians and scientists. They overlap. Um, But one... I was just thinking about this actually the other day, and I don't know how sciencey it is. We'll have to get Joe's approval or not. But um, I was thinking about the the non-Euclidean geometry of spherical geometry versus the flat geometry and how that dor- distortion comes across in the maps that we use. And there was a, a great YouTube that talks about the distortion of our flat maps and how the land masses are not truly representative well on maps because we're taking this spherical and trying to put it a 3D onto a 2D. So I, I talk about that when I do my non-Euclidean geometry with my kids. So is that sciencey enough? 10 out of 10 for sciencey. All right. Yeah, Joe's beaming back in to give Amy a thumbs up on that one. (laughs) Excellent. Well, if you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity and recognize our current associate producers, Norman Lau, Justin Ozer, Michael Huter, Thomas Appel, Chris Trebuzio, Jim McMahon, and Joe Keegan. Thank you for supporting Trek FM and especially Earl Grey. So join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Science is only impossible until it's not. Great joy and gratitude.